If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Amongst all the blood and guts and people having oil and oil poured on their heads and beehives chucked into castles and starving to death in dungeons and horses' guts falling out and you slash them to bits on the battlefield, actually, who's the, the makeup that got me? Don't know why that should be. Well, because it's every day, isn't it? It's, 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 you wake up in the morning, you put your game face on in order to face whatever King John's going to throw at you. That was Dan Jones and Helen Castor discussing the year 1215. You're listening to the History Extra podcast from BBC History magazine. We're the UK's best-selling history magazine, available from all good news agents or via subscription. Check out our latest subscription deals at historyextra.com forward slash subscribe. The magazine is also now available on many digital devices, including the iPad, iPhone, Kindle, Kindle Fire, Google Play, Kobo and Zinio. Look out for us in your app store or newsstand, or find out more at historyextra.com forward slash digital. Welcome to our third podcast of October 2015. I'm Rob Attar, the editor of BBC History magazine. For this week's episode, we're returning to a format that we trialled a couple of times last year, where one historian interviews another about their latest book. The book in question this time is Realm Divided, A Year in the Life of Plantagenet England, by medieval historian Dan Jones. Realm Divided tells the story of 1215, a year that has received a great deal of focus in 2015 
as we mark the 800th anniversary of Magna Carta. Putting the questions to Dan was Helen Castor, a historian at Cambridge University and a presenter of BBC Radio 4's Making History. And please be aware that this interview contains a discussion of medieval swearing, so you will encounter a little bit of ripe language. Dan, we're here to talk about Realm Divided, a year in the life of Plantagenet England, your new book. And the specific year in question is 1215. 2015 has obviously been a very big year for 1215. It's 800 years ago, and there's been a lot of attention on the ceiling of Magna Carta at Runnymede. There have been books written, including a brilliant one by you. But you're doing something different in this book. What is it that you've set out to do? Well, you're absolutely right that 2015 is the year of 1215, but um, but only in the sense that we've spoken an awful lot about Magna Carta, and I think that's I think that's good and that's right. And there's been the fantastic exhibition at the, at the British Library, amazing BBC shows. You know, there've been lots of books, as you rightly say, um, but it's not the whole story. And when I was writing my short book about Magna Carta, it was always with this sense that. Um, we were magnifying one part of a historical year in the context of the 800 years or because of the 800 years of history that had followed it. And I I tried to put myself in the place of someone who was writing the review of the year in, you know, the Sunday Times of 1215, were there such a thing? How do you assess the year just gone? And I, I thought, well, I didn't think you'd have thought Magna Carta was actually that important. Because if you were standing at the end of 1215 or sitting or just observing at the end of 1215 you would have you'll be doing so in the context for example of um, the fourth lateran council having been held in rome you know 1200 of the greatest churchmen in christendom had all descended um, at innocent iii's house basically to discuss plans for the fifth crusade but also these sweeping reforms to the church and very important reforms for example to take just one the reform to priestly roles in justice. So the trial by ordeal, the ordeal of water or fire, which would have relied on a priest to bless judicial proceedings. Well, that couldn't be done anymore because the, the Pope and, and the Fourth Lateran Council just prohibited priests from being involved in it. So you might think, in the context of, say, Fourth Lateran, that this was rather more life-changing and important than a failed peace treaty at Runnymede back in the summer which everyone has sort of forgotten because it was silly season. But then again, you might not have thought that because if you were to look at Magna Carta from the context of the end of 1215, you might also think not that a great sort of constitutional moment, uh, which would be remembered for centuries and celebrated in a British library exhibition, had just occurred. You might think we're in the middle of a civil war caused because of that stupid charter at Runnymede. So anyway, it's a very long way of saying 1215 was not all about Magna Carta. And one of the things I wanted to do for a while was write uh, a book that blended narrative history and social history. And 1215 seemed like a very good counterintuitive year to pick in which to do that. And I think it works brilliantly. It's a very complicated thing to do, though, isn't it, as, as a writer, to blend a chronological narrative with a kind of textural exploration of the world in which this narrative is happening. I'd like to explore both of those bits in a minute, but first of all, was it incredibly complicated to write? Because it's, it's a marvel of clarity to read, but it must have been really complicated to put together. Well, that's, that's kind of you to say. It was complicated to write, but I was, I was very determined in what I wanted to do with this book. I wanted to write social history, 
uh, because I find social history very interesting in the sense that I think I love the weird stuff, the sights, the smells, the sounds, the, the minutiae of everyday life, I find fascinating. What I don't find fascinating, speaking frankly, is the way that most social history has been written, which is usually thematic, quite digressive, not very exciting, and certainly not written in a way that makes you want to read from the start of a book to an end of a book. And all of my books that I've written, and, and particularly on, on the Plantagenets, because that is all of my books actually, but all the books I've written are narrative history. That's, that's what I like to write, and I like storytelling, and I like this sense that you, 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 know, you want to keep turning the pages. So it was, a, it was a challenge to say, can you write a narrative social history bound by a single year, which would, would, would be eventful, but, but to fuse those two um, forms. It was kind of an, an act of, of narrative planning, but I like that. That's the kind of, uh, the more I write, the more I, I do that. And, and I, I, I do a lot of work up front on books, thinking about the skeleton, thinking about the shape, thinking about the techniques. And there was a lot of planning went into this book so that we would start at the top with the king. And this book opens with King John in his private chapel, listening to the clergyman of his chapel sing at Christmas. And I wanted it to end the following Christmas with King John much more alone and isolated and in the middle of a civil war, which was largely of his own making. Those were the bookends of the story. They are the bookends of the story. And I did not want to digress, go backwards or forwards, particularly uh, in time. I wanted to shoot through almost like a journal of the year, month by month, week by week. And I thought, well, around that, I'm going to wind themes. So each chapter has a theme. So you start with who is the king and what is his kingdom? But then the next chapter takes you off into what is the nature of war? Because we could go and discuss the context of the Battle of Bouvines in 1214. What is the nature of warfare in 1215 in this age? And then there's a chapter which is uh, which takes us into what is the nature of religion. We, we've got the context then of the interdict, so you, you've got the storytelling which is moving forward, but you're also finding out about monasticism and about um, what it's like to be a priest or a templar or a nun or a, a hermit, all of these things. So that's all wound around the narrative until we get to the end. We, we sort of move, as it were, uh, down the sort of social hierarchy till there's this last chapter, which is what is it like to be a peasant in the middle of a country that's in the, in the grip of a civil war? So that was about winding themes around narrative chapters, and that was quite complicated. But, but also also about human experience. I mean, that, that in a sense felt like the thing that bound the two, that as the narrative went on, these moments would happen, out of which you would then explain what it was like to be in a siege or... Or to live in London, I want to come back to both of those sure. things later as well. But so it, it, the humanness of of this world came yeah. through really strongly through the story and and the exploration. Well, that's that's the that's the idea. That's the aim, and um, and being able to you know think about things. For example, the, the siege of Rochester Castle, which I'm sure we'll talk about in a minute. Um, that was actually the first chapter of the book that I wrote because I wanted to, I had to experiment when I was started writing this book. It's almost like doing a painting, you have to sketch first. And I thought, well, if I can do the siege of Rochester Castle, which happened in the autumn of, of 1215, and, and create a linear narrative of the siege, which took place over slightly more than a month, while also explaining what castles are about and what life, what siegecraft is about, then I felt fairly confident this would work. And that chapter did work, and so then I went back and started the, uh, the writing at the beginning. Part of this intensely human experience of being immersed in 1215 is, of course, that you've got some massive characters in your story. And we have to start with John himself. Uh, we all sort of know the caricature of 
bad King John, but he was a complex sort of bad, wasn't he? What exactly was wrong with John and what was he doing wrong as king? A complex sort of bad would be a very good title for a hip-hop album, but that, that is probably <laughs> by the by. John is a fascinating character because, as, as you say, the badness is not shallow. It is, there are depths of badness there are, and there are characteristics which he shares with his family which in him manifest as, quote-unquote, badness, which in Henry II or Richard the Lionheart manifest themselves as, as competence. Um, his obsession with um, with the workings and the mechanics of government bureaucracy and the law, well, in his father, that had, that had been at the heart of what had made Henry II such an effective king. Ruthlessness, callousness, brutality, well, those are all characteristics uh, shared by John and Richard the Lionheart, uh, but in Richard the Lionheart we tend to celebrate them somewhat more, and they were what, what made him an effective crusade leader. Uh, for example, and, and a great soldier defending the Plantagenet um, territories in France. In John, they tend to be turned perhaps in the wrong direction against the people of England, against people whom it would be more in his interest to trust than to persecute. What I got over the, over the course of this book, where we're, we're really in a sort of the realm of micro-history, we're exploring one year, is the ability to delve down a bit deeper into John. And, and, and whilst we're saying, yes, you know, brought down the interdict on England, yes, brought down sort of Magna Carta, yes, started a civil war, one of the, the most exciting bits of writing this book was to go into the sort of day-by-day entries in the government records, which really take off from, from around, uh, around 1215. So we, we know when John is ordering 10 oaks to be chopped down in Essex to reinforce the defences of the Tower of London, because he's worried that the barons, worried quite, quite rightly, that the barons of England are going to come and attack London. Uh, we see John sending you know, fish to stock the fish pond of his half-brother, William Longsword. We see uh, John sending orders that his hawks and falcons, of which, to which he, he was rather devoted, would be fed on plump hares and goat meat. And I think you know, it, all of that really adds the richness and texture of the book, but also rounds out our sort of vision of John and takes us from this place of, was he a monster? Was he a great administrator? Which is a very sort of facile argument, really. And says, here are the bad things politically and spiritually that John did, but here is also a picture of a complex and not easily definable man. And that's that's the business of writing. That's what I, I like about writing history. And it came out so strongly. It's all about fine textured stuff. I loved, as you say, all these detailed orders. You get a sense of the scale of government activity that he personally was directing. And then you have this wonderful moment where you talk about him sending out orders, but also false orders in case they fell into the wrong hands. And he would have complex codes and passwords to tell people which were the real ones, and then he'd forget the passwords. Yes. That was just a stunning moment of clarity on this this man who's holding so tight and not realising when things are beginning to slip through his fingers because of how tight he's holding. John forgetting his own passwords, I mean, we feel, feel we've familiar. All we've all been there. We've all been there. Imagine him in the age of Facebook and Twitter and, and, uh, and Hotmail. Oh, he would have been lost. But of course, yeah, John was, was devious and he was somewhat deviant and yes, he would send out false orders and then forget uh, the, the means by which he'd organised cancelling or his true orders and repl- whatever. But I think what, what comes across when you get really into the close roles and the patient roles, these, these orders, the, the specific orders being sent out by John's 
chancery, by his, his machinery of government as he travels relentlessly around the country, is the extraordinary energy and attention to detail that he had as a monarch. Uh, and, and the attention to detail uh, is not necessarily a good quality because, of course, it depends which detail you're paying attention to. If it's the detail of starving some people to death in your dungeons at Corfe Castle, it doesn't necessarily speak very highly to your character. But John is this sort of bundle of energy. And one of the other things I enjoyed exploring about uh, in the, the bits of the book that, that look at the king was this sense of him as constantly itinerant, as moving endlessly, relentlessly about his uh, his realm, um, town to town, never staying anywhere for more than a couple of days, very slippery, very elusive, but also very involved, very busy. And, um, you know, a man who fits into, when we actually talk about um, the most competent Plantagenet kings, when we talk about Edward IV in the 15th century, we always say, Edward IV, fantastic king because he, he knew everything about local government and he was able to stick his fingers into every sort of piece of local business. And if you mentioned something about what was going on in Gloucestershire to Edward IV, he said, yes, yeah, yeah, I know all about that. Um, well, John was sort of the same kind of character, this, this, this real, he was a real animal for government. And so it's, you know, it, it is always strange looking at, at these, these kings across the great sweep of Plantagenet history and seeing how different their reputations have turned out when often they share a lot of the similar characteristics. So we have John, and then the other titan of a character mm. in the book is one that British readers are probably less familiar with because I think we have a tendency when telling our island story to think about the Pope over there in Rome almost as a, a headline rather than a man. But Innocent III is a man you can't ignore and you've painted a wonderful portrait of him in the book. Can you tell us a bit about Innocent and why he matters so much in John's story? One of the, the aims in this book was not only to get granular with the detail and, and drill down into day by day, but also to sort of put England into context. You know, if you've, if you've taken a straw poll across Europe across Christendom, let's say, in the early 13th century, who was the man who everyone knew about? Who was the sort of notorious figure of the day? Well, it wouldn't really have been uh, King John. It would have been Innocent III. You know, probably, probably among the greatest of the medieval popes, a man sort of almost contemporary in age and uh, political supremacy with John. They died in, in pretty short order and had, had sort of risen to power in, within a couple of years of one another. A real reformer, a real man of deep, deep involvement in the business of the church, both on a sort of philosophical level and a practical political level, uh, and was not afraid to interfere in the business of uh, anyone within the church over which he ruled, but also... He wasn't afraid to interfere with the business of princes across Europe and everyone. Not it wasn't just John was not unique in having interdict and excommunication sort of threatened uh, and and carried out upon him by Innocent the Third. In fact, half the princes of Western Europe had experienced exactly the same thing. Uh, Innocent the Third was a man who wanted the Church to be the sort of dominant political power in the West and also in the East because you know he, he's a man who sends two crusades um, off towards Jerusalem and I say towards because the fourth crusade didn't get there they sacked Constantinople and came home in disgrace <laughs> but didn't put Innocent off you know by 1213 he's planning with enormous energy the fifth crusade and they're going to go off and, and kind of repeat the heroics of well the first crusade and to a more limited extent the third crusade so just as, as you say, a real titan of his age and, and somebody who had a very interesting relationship with 
John and with England as well. So you get this intersection between the local politics of England, which we get a very, very clear sense of, but then, as you say, get this wider context and how those currents right across Europe that Innocent is attempting to, to marshal, the difference that makes to how things play out in England month by month, week by week, sometimes day by day, even though there are these great delays because letters take a while to travel between Rome, Rome and England. But Innocent's intervention makes a real difference to, to John and his opponents. Well, yeah, and when, when I was writing about Innocent, I, I wanted to get this sense of, OK, well, how are England and Rome connected in the early 13th century? And we have a correspondence between John's court and Innocent's court. And we know that a man called Walter Moe Clerk was sent to Rome as John's messenger and was writing back to John, as you say, with, with some delay between the writing and the receiving of the letters, um, explaining the politics that were going on at Innocent's court. And the barons who were rebelling against the king in England had also sent their representatives. So there's this enormous lobbying system around Innocent uh, in uh, the latter palace out in Rome um, that is having a profound effect on on everyday life as well as high politics back uh, back in England. Uh, all of it complicated by the fact that it takes you know at least four and, and more likely five or six weeks for news to travel in either direction. But what was what was also remarkable was this sense when I when I was writing about uh, Walter McClurk going down. Um, to Rome to take to take messages from the King of England to Innocent III. What's the sense? Well, how do you get to Rome? Those are the kind of questions this book addresses. How do you get to Rome? And then we find that well, actually Matthew Paris, the, the chronicler of the mid thirteenth uh, century, has drawn this rather lovely map showing the various routes you take. You know, you go London to Dover, and then you can go sort of down, sort of south, a, a southwesterly route through France, or you can cut kind of a more um, easterly route through Lyon, and then and then. And then down into Italy that way, and there was this real sense that well, we know how to get to Rome. There are various ways you can do it, depending on what sites you want to take in along the way. Uh, that then leads on um, in the book to this sort of consideration. Well, if you if you were travelling down to Rome at this point, you'd have seen the effects of the crusade that uh, Innocent had launched against the Cathars in southern France. And you, so then we get into this idea of heresy within um, parts of uh, of Western Christendom and the mutation of the Crusades away from just the East to, to push into uh, into Western Christendom as well. So all of these things, it's about more than just the story of Magna Carta. It's about this this sort of sense of the facts of everyday life. And, and the, the experience of life, which also then, I mean, obviously it throws up some wonderful stories. I mean, as you say, the weird stuff that we all, we all love yeah. of how the medieval world works. But it's more than that, isn't it? Because it, it helps us get inside the medieval mind to understand how they saw the world they lived in, how they experienced it. There are so many examples in the book, I and mean, it's just a, a delight, uh, page by page. I mean, one that's stuck in my mind is when you're talking about law and justice. You give some wonderful examples of drunken evenings in the pub that turn into horrible violence outside, because, of course, everyone's carrying a knife for yes. daily routine purposes. And I, I was thinking that this is a sort of medieval version of, um, you know, swords don't kill people, people do, you know, kind of, you know the, the, the NRA of the Middle Ages wouldn't have got very far with trying to ban swords, and yet the violence that they could unleash was extraordinary. How far do you think we can get in actually seeing the medieval world through medieval eyes? Are there bits that are particularly difficult? Is humour, for example, I was, 
Is, is it hard to tell when people are joking in the medieval sources? I think it is hard to tell when people are joking, although it's, it's not as hard as often we think. There's a bit where, I, in the book, where I'm writing about education, scholastics, language. So we, we start talking about, uh, I talk a bit, a bit about the chroniclers of the time. And, and when you're reading the accounts by men like Roger Wendover, Walter Mapp, Gerald of Wales... You get this sense when you read the chronicles, or, or rather, when you read through these chronicles, what you have to bear in mind is that there's a web of in-jokes and uh, subtle references and literary tropes that will just pass you by reading them through modern eyes, but were there to be deliberately picked out. There are sort of references to classical writers, there are, or echoes of, of phrases by classical writers which have been popularly known at the time, there are echoes of biblical lines, which everyone would have known in a sort of educated community in, in the 13th century, which which just fly straight over our heads when we're reading these chronicles. But they were there sometimes as jokes, sometimes as clever, clever references. So there is a, a kind of element of the worldview, which I think you're always going to be removed from. Although what I would say is I don't think that's unique to studying the Middle Ages. I think that's true uh, for every historian, whatever period we're, we're studying. On the other hand, there's a real kind of bawdiness and earthiness to a lot of the stuff that's written about the early 13th century. And there, it was there in, in medieval humour, in the approach to life. And, and it's quite funny. There's, there are a lot of bits in this book that I think are quite funny. And I, I certainly was giggling to myself when I was, I was writing it. There's a little section on swearing and, and what words are offensive and what words are not offensive. And of course, in, or, or not of course, in the early 13th century, what was more offensive was, were things that were literally profane. So cursing by God's bowels or God's nails or God's teeth or God's hair or God's feet or God's ankles or God's iPod or whatever was much more um, offensive than any reference to kind of um, sex or scatology. And so, you, and because of that fact, when you look, let's say, at people's names, another section of the book I talk about what were people actually called in, the, in 1215, um, you come across people called things like John Prickhard. <laughs> you also call, come across people called things like, uh, you know, Walter the Deaf or Geoffrey Pure. <laughs> Um, Purely descriptive. <laughs> these are descriptive terms. Um, but I was, I was reading only yesterday. There's a uh, someone had come across again. It's from I think it's from the it's either from the early 14th or early 13th century. But it's certainly illustrative of the kind of ripe humour that was that was there in 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 everyday life. And there's a there's a sort of passing reference in the court record to a man called Roger Fuck by the Naval. Um, now, quite what on earth is being referred to here? But that was, that was obviously the nickname he'd been given. It stuck as his sort of quote-unquote surname. He was actually outlawed in this court record. And this isn't in the book, so this is exclusive material, uh, which was on the internet yesterday. You do have this, as I say, bawdiness, earthiness. It's very drunken. Um, so, as you say, everyone's carrying a knife and everyone's drinking ale which is obviously a very dangerous combination, um, as we know from our times. But when this is, there is such a lot of common drunkenness, there's no surprise when you go through the court records that you find just so many casual uh, examples, A, of people falling into ponds and rivers and drowning, um, and B, of really quite serious violence, you know, a lot of stabbings. But um, 
I was going. I was looking at the court records from London. There's a chapter in the book about London, and we see. Uh, I think it's a chapter called Lawrence Turpin bit someone's thumb off. You know, in the middle of a fight. Oh. Gosh, how unpleasant! But then, uh, and I don't know why that detail kind of really grabbed me when I was kind of going through uh, through these records. But that's the sort of thing that I take, think takes you really deep into the fabric of life in a way that sometimes the bigger, um, grander uh, sort of bits of history don't. Now you mentioned London, and I wanted to pick up on that because one of your chapters does a beautiful job of putting us right in the middle of early 13th century London, which is so different from the peasant in the field stereotype of what we might think of as agrarian medieval England. Can you paint a bit of a picture of of London at that point and tell us why it mattered so much, London, within England, politically, socially? Well, when we look at England or United Kingdom today, it's a very London-centric place because the media is based in London and finance is based in London and, um, you know, whatever. And I, I suppose we might think that that's a sort of modern um, phenomenon or something that's come about with the industrial, uh, post-industrial revolution. But really, I don't think it was, because I think even by the early 13th century, although there were big cities elsewhere in England, Norwich, uh, Winchester, which had traditionally been the capital of England before the Plantagenet era, London was absolutely dominant. You know, the, the, the trade came through London. Government operated in and around London. The sort of growing legal profession was largely based in London. Um, London was much, much bigger than every other town. London was somewhere that people such as Fitzstephen, who wrote a a biography of Thomas Beckett, uh, wrote this kind of long and adoring account of of how amazing London was. And and it's full of of these vivid descriptions of what life in London uh, is like with, you know, people um, going out to Smithfield to ride, you know, have horse races and skating on the Thames when it's frozen. And when the Thames isn't frozen, uh, having jousts in boats where you, you have to knock your opponent off the boat. Um, and the sense that uh, London's slightly dangerous, slightly dirty, but also kind of beautiful and cool and, and stands uh, aloft and aloof uh, from every other city, not only in not only in England, but in the rest of Europe. And that's the same attitude that Londoners have today. This sort of terrible, smug, metropolitan uh, hoity-toitiness is there absolutely at the end of the 12th and the beginning of the 13th century. It is already fully formed. And people are writing poems about how amazing London is. So, you know, forget this being a modern phenomenon. 800 years ago, London was in its roots, in its kind of bones, really, what it is today. And I loved writing that chapter on London. because, of, And, of course, London's important in the narrative of the year. London's important because in 1215, the barons came to London, took it, and it was a major part of what brought Johnson to the And didn't just take it, but as, as you... Because I mean, one of the brilliant things is that you're, you're following the chronology through moment by moment, so we get to see things as they happen. And the self-determination of the Londoners here, the, the decision the Londoners make to let them in... Mm. Is is really striking, and how much difference that decision, you know, that it's it's, it's the Baron's assertion of, of that they want to come in, but the Londoners open the gates to them. Don't they? Yeah, absolutely, and I think um, this this idea that London is central 
to political and cultural life in England is not a delusion by any stretch of the imagination because on the 17th of May, Sunday 17th of May 1215, the group of barons rebelling against King John uh, had, had received a message earlier in the week that London was prepared to open its gates to them. So while all the citizens were at prayer on Sunday morning, they rode to London, not very many of them, had helped scaling the walls, uh, lock the gates against against the king's men and took London. Now, when when you're writing a, a sort of narrative social history, this is brilliant because now you have eyes, you have sort of the camera on the shoulder of the barons entering London and then you can start painting this, this amazing vista of London, what is London, and go into into sort of the, the street-by-street description of it. But it also tells you that London is absolutely crucial because had that not happened, John would not have had much problem putting down the rebellion and the civil war uh, that broke out after Magna Carta. Well, first of all, he wouldn't have been he wouldn't have been brought to Runnymede, and secondly, he wouldn't have been sort of forced into this civil war because London really was this pivotal place. You know, if it was held against the king, that was a very very big problem for the king, uh, and indeed, it was held against John. And this is the coming together of London and the rebel barons. Now, the barons are an interesting lot at this point, aren't they? Because what comes out really clearly in your book is the ways in which Magna Carta particularly addressed the needs of the barons. It shouldn't be a surprise because it was, in a sense, a baronial document, but of course we've come to think of Magna Carta as this glorious universal document that that looks after everybody. But 1215 was one of the, feels like, one of the rare times in history where the barons were in some senses, the, the elite were in some senses having a worse time than people lower down the hierarchy. I mean, clearly not in material terms. They were eating much better. They were living much better. But politically, they were feeling a very particular pinch, weren't they? What what was that? How did that work? What what were their particular difficulties in 1215? Well, the barons were, in, in 1215, did find themselves, as you say, in, in rather a sticky situation. You're right to say they weren't having a materially worse time than the people through, you know, who's gardens they were riding through on their way to, to you know, face down John. But there is a very small group of people, numbering probably only around 100, uh, of extraordinary wealth and um, privilege who are having a very difficult time with John because he'd focused on this group to tap into their wealth, let's say, to, to fight his foreign wars. He was bringing to bear his prerogatives as king and the, the, the power of the English legal system, really, to break them, take their wealth, for his, uh, he was tyrannising, and, and their heads were above the parapet because there were so few of them, and they were so wealthy that actually yeah. he he made that decision to go for them, and they were exposed in in that way. So, what was it about the thought world of twelve fifteen that you've been exploring mm. so um, interestingly that brought them to the idea of a charter? How does that work? Well. I suppose one of the misconceptions that is worth correcting that surround Magna Carta is is that Magna Carta was the first statute or the first time that any king had been forced to agree to anything whatsoever and put it down on parchment. Of course, we know that's not the case. You know, we can go back probably centuries before Magna Carta and find kings issuing charters, issuing coronation charters, issuing law codes. I mean, this is a part of human society outside England for thousands of years, the kings issuing law codes with the tacit understanding that they would obey, if not obey, then observe them themselves. In 1215, I think there's a sense that 
John had to be brought to book in some way and that bringing him within the, uh, let's say, confines of a charter was going to be an effective way to do it because he was a king who was so very interested in written forms of the law, a king who couldn't just be brought to book by military action. There needed to be some higher way of doing it. And I think in terms of personnel, in terms of people around at the time, the the influence of Archbishop Langton is very important here as well in persuading the barons that rather than just going sort of terrorising the king, there could be a mechanism by which he was formally brought under their power, under their control. And that, that found its manifestation in Magna Carta. And the way that was brought about... It's very interesting. Langton, you mentioned Archbishop Langton, and and as you talk about the drafting of Magna Carta, the fact that the the English Church gets inserted at the beginning mm. of the Charter in a sort of separate space of its own that hasn't been there in any of the drafts. That's clearly Langton, isn't it? Shoving that in at the beginning and then before anybody else's grievances get get dealt with. Yeah, I think you know the Archbishop Langton is a, is a huge figure, and if we're talking about the the sort of figures that dominate. This year, then, or you know, in, in this context, then John and Innocent III, then Langton is is another because a real sort of intellectual uh, titan of his age, quite a canny politician, although not, not canny enough to um, to survive the the aftershocks of Magna Carta, because his reward for sort of trying to keep a, a balance between king and rebels was to be ultimately suspended from his office by the Pope by the end of, of twelve fifteen. Well, thank you very much. On the other hand, I suppose being being slightly mischievous and counterintuitive, again, let's take ourselves back to the, the, the position of the person writing the review of the year of 1215. You might have said, well, what was, what was Stephen Langton's great achievement in, you know, in what looked like a career that had just really hit the rocks because he'd been suspended at the Fourth Lateran Council, he'd been suspended from ecclesiastical office for not having sorted things out properly in England. You probably wouldn't have said, um, well, his midwifing of this charter that happened at Runnymede in the summer of 1215. You'd have said, well, this was a man when he was the sort of the, the towering intellectual um, uh, theologian in Paris, the University of Paris, where he'd spent most of his career. This was a man who divided the Bible into the chapters that, coincidentally, we still use today. That you would have, you would have thought in 1215 had been Langton's great achievement or his you know, brilliant series of lectures exploring... Um, exploring the nature of, of rule, the nature of kingship, how kings should act, what the, what the sort of godly role of a prince was. So when I've, when I've written about Langton, I've tried to draw that out. This isn't just Langton through the prism of Magna Carta. This is who is Langton and why is he important? And actually, why was John so hostile initially to this man being sent into England? Well, because he was, a, he was the sort of the star of the University of Paris, the, the capital political heartland of Philip Augustus, John's great enemy. So we have this cast of, of not quite thousands, but many congregating in Runnymede. And it occurred to me when I got to that part of the book that I'd never stopped to ask myself, why Runnymede? Why this particular soggy meadow near Staines? But you have some very interesting things to say about why that spot in particular might have been chosen. Yeah, I th- well, I asked myself exactly the same questions. And we always, you know... As it says in Magna Carta, um, in the, the meadow that's called Running Me Between Windsor and Staines. And let's go, OK, fine, that was, must have looked like a nice spot. Well, you're right, you say, why? And we're not sure, but I think there's, there are a number of possible reasons. Uh, one is, is practicality. It's between Windsor, where the king was staying, and the nearest town, Staines, on the way to London, 
which was sort of in quote unquote rebel country. You know, it was, it was in in barren country. Well, it was a a useful place to meet in the middle. Um, there weren't any convenient uh, roads other than the road between Windsor and Staines from which you could approach Runnymede, so there would be no surprise attacks. The ground was too boggy um, to fight on. All of those are good practical reasons, but I think there's there's slightly more to it. And um, Runnymede, I think, was a sort of ancient uh, liminal space. It was known as somewhere where you would go to sort things out, to have meetings. It was traditionally neutral territory. And in its name, from the, the Anglo-Saxon, which, which we've turned into Runnymede, is implied this sense that it was a meadow where a king would go to take advice. So there was, there's much more going on in the choice of Runnymede than simple, practical, military and political considerations. I don't say that those are not important, because I think they are, but I think what's also important is a sort of cosmic sense that Runnymede is somewhere. I know Runnymede was not the only place, but Runnymede is somewhere where you go to thrash things out. And there were lots of... There was a tradition of political discussions, um, great political moments being carried out in these sort of liminal spaces. And so... Again, I think it's it's about seeing the events of 1215, which inevitably have to include Magna Carta, from a slightly different perspective and asking questions that we don't normally stop to ask. We normally say, oh, you know, what's the sort of constitutional significance of Magna Carta? Well, actually, the more interesting question is, why the hell were they at Runnymede? And then, of course, it only takes about five minutes before John is trying to get out of what mm. he's promised. And you make very clear that the huge difficulty is enforcement. They have a security clause in the Charter that says if John doesn't stick to what he says, then 25 of the barons can make him, which essentially means there's going to be war. There is war, and we get to the siege of Rochester Castle, which is, as we said earlier, one of the great set pieces in this book. Now, again, it made me think of all sorts of questions that I hadn't really confronted before, which in a sense boiled down, I suppose, to the unimaginability, the impossibility of thinking about how you either attack a castle like that or how you defend it. I mean, both jobs seem to me to be so challenging as to be unthinkable from the perspective of the 21st century. Was that how it felt to write it? Well, I mean, just in sort of parenthesis and, and backpedalling slightly, your, your point about um, the clause in, the security clause in Magna Carta is really important. Uh, not just in the history of Magna Carta, but in terms of thinking about this year in the life of Plantagenet England, because, yes, we always focus on Clause 39 and 40 of Magna Carta. Now, uh, to no one will we sell, deny, delay, right or justice, yada, yada, yada. Uh, actually, Clause 61, the security clause, much much more practically important, because this was the unanswered question of Magna Carta, and this was the reason Magna Carta failed. You can't make the king obey it. It's a peace treaty, whose only mechanism for enforcement is civil war. It has this contradiction right at the heart of it. And, um, and, and you're hoping the king will choose to abide by it, but the whole reason you've got there is that John isn't trustworthy. <laughs> absolutely. So you're in this kind <laughs> of logical yeah. uh, vortex, if you see, which, which only ends with the, the place being sucked uh, to the bottom, and the bottom is civil war. And that, of course, is very important for ordinary people in the year 1215. So that, I mean, that's why Magna Carta is practically important. Anyway... The Siege of Rochester Castle, which is the sort of, if you like, the great set piece of the Civil War in the autumn of 1215. Of course, things got substantially worse in 1216. 
But in 1215, uh, the barons were holding London. John was outside London. And there was an attempt, John was raising mercenaries from the continent, particularly from sort of Flanders, uh, bringing them over by boat um, through ports like Dover. And there was an attempt by the barons to invest Rochester Castle on the way down to the, the southeast coast. And it, as I say, this was the first chapter I wrote of this book because I wanted to see if we could combine narrative history with the slight digressions of social history. And I, I was quite excited to do it because you start saying, OK, what does it mean to invest a castle? How do you practically go about it? Well, the accounts, accounts by people like Roger Wendover say they linked it to the castle, basically, and, and tried to round up whatever supplies they could find along the way. Because you, you, there were about 100 or so knights inside Rochester Castle, along with a bunch of other people um, there to kind of support the, the, the military garrisoning of the castle. Um, that's a lot of mouths to feed, even if you've only got to hold the place for a month. So how do you provision a castle? What are the means... From looking at it from the other way, by which you you bring down a castle. If you've, anyone who's been to Rochester Castle, it is genuinely huge, and without a bulldozer or you know a sort of cruise missile, you do say, how would I how would I go about bringing down this enormous sort of stone edifice? And it is testament to the enormous uh, and and wonderful ingenuity, rationality, uh, determination, ruthlessness of medieval people that they found ways in which to conduct siegecraft against stone castles in an age before let's say the you know, late 14th early 15th century when there, there weren't really guns when you're relying on wooden giant wooden catapults hurling rocks to attack and oh, well if not rocks then dead animals or beehives or whatever you want and pouring hot stuff on people's heads or throwing rocks back as a means of defending it's a very sort of dirty elemental um raw way of fighting and a key and to me rather surprising part in this siege is played by pig fat well this is the great thing about siege if you go to Rochester Castle today the keep has three four sided keep three square towers and one round one and the round one is there because one of the the four square towers fell down in 1215 when as a direct result of John um, besieging successfully Rochester Castle uh, he used miners to dig underneath the castle. As they dug, they propped up the mine they were digging with wooden struts, if that's the right word. Uh, once the mine was dug, we have the, the record of John writing to one of his officials in Kent saying, please send me the fat of 40 pigs of the sort least good for eating. How peculiar. Um, you know, is he cheapskating on his bacon sandwiches for the workers? Absolutely not, because... Here is the crucial part of, of undermining a castle. The pig fat was used to smear the wooden struts within the mine. It was set on fire. All the wooden struts collapsed more or less at once. So did the mine and so did the tower on the corner of the keep of Rochester Castle above it. So you bring down one corner of the castle by digging this mine and then setting it on fire with pig fat. But, but while I was writing it, I really, again, I wanted to get really, really granular and really into the tiny detail and think, what does it smell like? What does it smell like? If you're standing inside Rochester Castle and you're very hungry because you've been under siege for three weeks, I mean, if you're not quite eating your shoes, you know that soon enough you're going to be, uh, as soon as all the horses have been eaten anyway. What does it smell like if someone sets fire to a load of pig fat? Well, it's going to smell delicious to start with because as, as anyone who's walked past a sort of burger van 
making bacon sandwiches on the way to a football match will know the smell of bacon is very delicious. Um, soon enough, it will turn to the kind of, kind of acrid tang of kind of lard, which if, you, if you've been making your roast potatoes, you know, how, if you forget about it in the oven and open it, then what black smoke comes out. Well, then you're going to smell that, which is rather more ominous in the context of a siege. Uh, and then suddenly it, it, it gives way to the kind of crash of falling masonry and, and, and the air being full of dust. And that's why I wanted to write this, because, you know, it takes you... You don't just say, oh, and then Rochester Castle fell and they all went up north to Nottingham. No, let, let's linger over this siege, not, not for uh, sort of voyeuristic purposes, but actually to get ourselves into the, into the tiny detail of life in, in one year in Plantagenet, England. Let's think about what it's like to be um, besieged within a fortress, because uh, although it sounds funny to us when you say, oh, John got the fat of 40 pigs and, and burned a mine down, actually this would have been uh, a combination of, of disgust terror, fear, all mingled into one. So we get right inside these kind of emotions of the medieval mind. This is possibly not a very fair question, but I'm going to try it anyway. Your, um, among your recent books, was The Hollow Crown, uh, a study of the Wars of the Roses, late 15th century. Now you've gone back to 1215 and you've got, as you say, deep into the granular experience of living in 1215. If you were to do the same thing for the late 15th century, and I know you're always concerned with the human experience, but if you were to do that really Hmm. deep textural study of living in the late 15th century, would it be very different from 1215, do you think? Or would there be a lot that a time traveller from 1215 would recognise? Without wanting to give too Weasley a historical answer, some things would be different, some things would be the same. I think the world... Uh, well, we've just been talking about siegecraft, the world of siegecraft, as you know, you know, writing about um, about the Hundred Years' War in France when Joan of Arc was around. The world of siegecraft would be very different if we think about Henry V besieging Harfleur at the beginning of the Agincourt uh, campaign. Very, very different from John's siege of Rochester Castle in twelve fifteen, because as as we've been talking about, siege of Rochester Castle, stones thrown out of wooden catapults, pig fat under the what's it? Well, you don't need to bother with any of that at Harfleur because we know they dragged huge cannon off the boats and up the beach and, and blasted the thing into kind of dust within three weeks. No problem. So I think the experience of war was, would, would be very, very different. Far more battles, let's say, in, in, uh, in the 15th century. So we know that from the Wars of the Roses. Well, in, in the early 13th century, you only went to battle in the field under extreme duress or if you were absolutely certain you were going to win because... A battle was always seen uh, in, in this age at large as a sort of test of God's favour, and to lose it would, would, would be a very bad thing. Indeed, uh, in, the, in the 13th century, siegecraft, much safer and much more predictable and, and much less likely to lead to sort of huge loss of life. Well, in the 15th century, far more battles, far more of these sort of dreadful routes that we saw, you know, we see at Agincourt or we see at Taunton or at, uh, to a slightly lesser extent at, at Bosworth or whatever. Um, so I think, you know, in, ter- in pure military terms, yeah, the world would look very, very different. If you, if you think about, uh, on the other hand, we, uh, there's a section of the book, between each of these narrative chapters, I've put these sort of mini essays about aspects of everyday life, things like what do people wear. So we might think if you, if you transported yourself quantum leap style from, um, or Blackadder style or whatever, from the, the 13th century to the 15th, that things would have got much grander. People's clothes would have got much grander. And I think only probably the hats would have got a lot grander because 
And when you look at one of the things that actually surprised me slightly when I started to think about it was I always think of the sort of start of the great age of court finery and real showy dressing in England to have been Edward IV's court, you know, the import of Burgundian fashions and the, and the, the ritualisation of court. But really, when you start looking at King John's court, this would have been a pretty fly place to, to see as well. You only have to look at... In fact, I've been down to the, the archives in Canterbury Cathedral. I think they loaned some of this to the Magna Carta exhibition. But you see the vestments that were taken out of Hubert Walter's tomb. Hubert Walter died in 1205. He was Archbishop of Canterbury. You know, they have his mitre, this beautiful gold uh, sort of fabric of his mitre. They have his kind of lovely slippers which have these, these jewels sewn onto them and, and little griffins and, uh, and, and dragons embroidered in the finest embroidery. You can still, you know, you see the vestments, which you could, even though they've faded and discoloured with time, you could tell just how magnificent this stuff would have looked. So contrary to what, you know, I, I had sort of assumed idly before, the early 13th century was by no means a much duller place than the 15th century. So that's, I suppose, one area in which um, you would find that things had stayed the same. I guess if you look at the experience of the medieval peasant, there were probably more serfs in early 13th century England, you know, people in bondage to the land. Um, there were fewer, certainly in the 15th century. Would your experience as one of the poorest people in medieval England have felt materially different between the late 15th century and the early 13th century, sorry, vice versa? No, I think it would still have been pretty miserable. Um, so, you know, things change, things stay the same. Um, it's pretty miserable now to be one of the poorest people in England. So, But that's the stuff of history. Let's end by going right back to the micro, because that is mm-hmm. the joy of this book. If you had to pick one detail or one story or one character that you came across in your trawl through all these sources that was your absolute favourite, something that just made you laugh out loud or will stay with you, what would it be? I added quite late in the day um, a sort of little micro chapter between chapters in this book about medicine. Uh, Because, you know, any period before the advent of... um, antibiotics and and proper painkillers i always think would be pretty unsophisticated medically but of course not 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 the case at all and i I did quite a bit of reading about medicine and surgery in uh in the early 13th century and of course one one alights immediately on um, the role of salerno the place in europe for um for medical research and medical practice so i suppose it's like going to switzerland now whatever this was you went down to salerno southern italy and then you come across the book uh, by Trochula of Salerno, which is this incredible medical handbook. It's, all, it's just a sort of blizzard of advice on how to cure all these different types of ailments, uh, particularly um, on women's medicine. So there's information on how to sort of relieve heavy menstruation. There's uh, a recipe for if, you, if you're terribly fat and can't conceive, then you smear yourself in cow dung and white wine and take steam baths. <laughs> Um, I mean, it's not too far from uh, from alternative medicine today, <laughs> frankly. But among among the things in this medical handbook, there are all these recipes for women's makeup. Very sort of sophisticated. And I do have a sort of personal interest in this. And in, uh, my wife spends her time doing public relations for for women's makeup brands. So I'm, I'm used to seeing our house full of full of uh, full of makeup. 
And really, the recipes are, are incredibly sophisticated, and, and the the ingredients that they're taking to, for for all of these these potions, which will reduce your freckles or kind of make your teeth nicer or your skin kind of glow. Getting things like Armenian bowl. I mean, to to obtain this, you're getting a, a very rare sort of red clay, which was obviously being brought from Armenia. If it was coming to Salerno, then it was coming to southern Italy. Well, I think that's the best part of a thousand miles. If it was coming to London or to to England. It was travelling 2,000 miles. This sense that these tiny ingredients for cosmetics are being transported around Europe. I mean, that, that really kind of, kind of got me. And amongst all the blood and guts and people having oil and oil poured on their heads and beehives chucked into castles and starving to death in dungeons and horses' guts falling out and you slash them to bits on the battlefield, actually, it was the, the makeup that got me. Don't know why that should be. Well, because it's every day, isn't it? It's, 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 you wake up in the morning, you put your game face on in order to face whatever King John's going to throw at you. It, it's, but I think that's, that's what this book does, is give you that texture of human life from the biggest world-shaking events down to what happens when you get up in the morning. And that's why I loved it. So thank you very much. Well, no, thank you. Thank you. I'm glad you liked it. Thank you very much indeed. That was Dan Jones in conversation with Helen Castor. Realm Divided, A Year in the Life of Plantagenet England, has just been released, published by Head of Zeus. And Helen's most recent book, Joan of Arc, A History, is out now in paperback, published by Faber. And if you'd like to find out more about that book, then why not check out the podcast episode we released on the 2nd of October 2014, where Dan Jones put the questions to Helen. And now we have a short advertisement break. Sir Barry Cunliffe, author of By Step, Desert and Ocean, describes how humans first started building the globalised world we know today. The book is, I think, what you could call big history. Uh, It covers the whole of Europe and Asia. It's a big, big theatre and a great depth of time from the origins of when people are producing food right up to Genghis Khan in the 13th century. We all have bits of information, things that interest us that we might read up, might read something about uh, Attila the Hun, for example, or you might be interested in uh, how the horse was first uh, domesticated and and ridden, or you might be interested in Chinese pottery. What I'm trying to do is to link up these little bits of information we have and tell a story, a a real narrative of uh, how Eurasia developed and how people in Eurasia developed. By Step, Desert and Ocean is now available online and in all major bookshops, priced at £30. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. 
eBay Motors is here for the ride. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only, exclusions apply. For the past year and a half, we've been running a series in the magazine and on the podcast called Our First World War that charts the events of the conflict a hundred years on, through the voices of those who lived and fought through it. Well, we've now got to October 1915, and here, speaking to the Imperial War Museum, is able seaman George Wainford describing some of the ships of the Royal Navy. Did you think that the ship was uh, battle-ready, as they say, or no. ready, ready for action? <laughs> no, we, we all did. I don't think we'd have stood much chance about a modern German ship, but the lads thought, you know, when we was all right, they thought, you know... We were so much better than the Germans. It would be a cakewalk, I think, most of them thought. So you thought you, you, that your ship would have been equal even for a German dreadnought? Yes, it? yeah, there's no question about we wouldn't be ready. I, I think, you know, I didn't realise that a German navy was so good as it was. Did you go out on sweeps for the whole Grand Fleet ever? Oh, yes, oh, yes. What sort of sight was it, the Grand Fleet? Is? Oh, a good sight, you know, see all the great ships, mile after mile of them all, perhaps in two columns with the small ships, guarding them all round, and oh, it's a fine sight. That was George Wainford. Now here, also speaking to the Imperial War Museum, is Sergeant Jack Dorgan, describing his attempts to rescue an injured man on the Western Front. I lay him down... He couldn't do anything. No use being sorry for him. I had a job to do. Lay him down and I lay down alongside of him and with my feet. I had a long rest. And the fellows in the trench were shouting encouragement. But nobody could come out to help me. So eventually... I get Spivert Somerville laid out at the bottom of this heap of soil and sandbags, which was the whole parapet of the trench. And with my feet, listening and waiting for the German machine guns, the two, it was only two, we were lucky, they only used the two, and sometimes they were going the full length of the trench, and sometimes they were only going a few yards and swinging back. So I had to take a chance. When I was, I thought there was no machine gun bullets striking the top of the trench. You could hear them and feel them hitting the top of the trench. And with my feet, I rolled Private Somerville. He couldn't help me at all, poor fella. Up the side of the front of the parapet and then soldiers inside the trench picked them up. Stretcher bearers, of course, would be there, I expect, I don't know. And then I lay. I must have lay in 10 or 15 minutes, exhausted. And then I 
waited my opportunity to get up this front of the parapet into the trench. When I got into the trench, found nobody there. Found nobody there. Not even a sentry group. I sit, I sat and I lay on that fire step. And that was the end of it as far as I was concerned. That was Jack Dorgan. Our First World War continues each month in BBC History magazine. And speaking of the magazine, our November issue is currently on sale. In this month's edition, there are articles on the Anglo-Saxons, Second World War spies, the Celts, and the Royal Navy's role in the American Revolution. You can get hold of our November issue in all good news agents and in our many digital formats. Well, that's pretty much it for this week, but please do listen in next time when we'll be talking about Agincourt with Anne Curry, while historical novelist Bernard Cornwell will be discussing his Saxon novels in advance of a major TV adaptation. Thanks for listening to this History Extra podcast, which was produced by Jack Fletcher. Do let us know what you think about this episode by emailing podcast at historyextra.com and we might read out your messages in future episodes. Alternatively, why not keep in touch via Twitter or Facebook, where you'll find us at History Extra. For more great history content, don't forget to visit our website, historyextra.com, where you will find history quizzes, galleries, articles and more. Plus, it's where you can download every single previous episode of this podcast. <laughs>